Great. Hi. Welcome, everyone. My name is Ralph. It's a real pleasure uh, to be able to join you and speak uh, this morning. Um, you might not know this if you're a visitor, but Grace Church has been incredibly kind to me, my family, uh, and uh, the membership of the core team of City Church by hosting us for the past, oh, it's coming up for 11 months now. It's been really kind. And basically, Grace Church has just given to us, and I've often wondered, uh, what is Mike and the leadership of Grace Church going to want in return? And now I realise... It's someone to preach on this passage. Uh, But this is God's word, isn't it? And God's word is good. Uh, So let me pray for us as we turn to look at it this morning. Father God, thank you so much that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you haven't left us in silence. Thank you that your word is living and active. Thank you that it penetrates right down into our soul. Sometimes it it touches places we don't want it to touch. Sometimes it challenges us in ways we don't want to be challenged in. And Lord, we're so conscious that sometimes we only see in it what we want to see in it. So Lord, we pray that by the Spirit you would take your word today and apply it to our hearts and our minds. We pray that we wouldn't just leave uh, with new knowledge about how to handle passages like this, but that we would leave transformed, uh, to live lives that bring you great glory, to give, live lives that adorn the gospel, that we might truly be your people, strangers and aliens in this world, living for your praise and your glory as your ambassadors in this place, we ask. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder if anyone has ever been to Lecklade Mill. Uh, Lecklade Mill in Gloucestershire. This is the garden of Lecklade Mill in Gloucestershire, and it has a big maze in it. It's a huge maze. Uh, it's made up of 3,000 yew bushes, and it measures 57 metres by 29 metres. And when you're in this maze, it it just looked like a a maze, a mess of yew bushes. You you can't really see anything in it. But when you go to the house, and and you go upstairs in the house, or or you go above it and you look down, look what you see. It's a foot. But the whole maze is designed to be a massive foot. And it's sized so that it fits a giant as tall as the Eiffel Tower. How cool to have so much money you can waste it on that. (laughs) But there is no way you would know that that maze was a foot when you're lost in the middle of the maze. Sometimes we can get lost in the detail of something, can't we? And we have a saying for that, don't we? Can't see the wood for the trees. You've heard that, haven't you? We sometimes get, get stuck in the detail, and that detail blinds us to the bigger picture. Which, if only we saw that bigger picture, we'd understand the detail much better. Well, I think as we turn to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, there is a real danger of that happening with this chapter. We read that great verse, verse 1, Wives, submit to your husbands. And immediately the hackles come up. Did you see Newsnight last week? Jeremy Paxman interviewing the the ex-pupil of a Christian school. Do you know what he said about this verse? He said it was misogynistic and extremist. It's just laughable, isn't it, that the Bible says something like that? For us to believe that in the 21st century, it's worse than laughable, you know, it's dangerous. That's what people think. 
But we mustn't get lost in the trees. We've got to see the bigger picture. You see, verses 1 to 7 of 1 Peter chapter 3 is part of a bigger passage, a much longer section that started way back in chapter 2 and verse 11. But look back at that with me. It starts, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. That is what this whole section of First Peter is about. It is about Christians living in the world in such a way that unbelievers praise God. But you know, doing that won't mean conforming to the ideals of society. Remember verse 11, chapter 2, what's it say? We are foreigners and exiles in this land. We live in Manchester, that's true. We live in one of the most liberal cities, in one of the most liberal countries in the world. But we don't belong here, do we? Now, verse 9 of chapter 2, we are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And our purpose is to declare God's praises. That, friends, is the woods. That is the big picture in which this tree of instructions to husbands and wives is planted. And it's the main point that Peter wants to make in this section. That's our first point this morning. Live in a way that wins people for the gospel. Just look at who Peter is addressing in verse 1 of chapter 3. Wives... In the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Uh, Peter's talking to Christian wives, isn't he? And and primarily, although not exclusively, he's got in mind women who find themselves married to men who do not believe. Women who have become Christians and now find that they have a husband who is not a believer. Uh, you probably heard the famous line from this man. This is St. Francis of Assisi, or, or what they thought he looked like. And he's reported to have said, preach the word at all times, use words if necessary. You heard that? Now, as it happens, Francis of Assisi almost certainly didn't say that. But the question is, is that basically what Peter is saying here? Christian wives, win your husbands for Jesus by the way you live. And only if really, really necessary, use words. Wives, live a life so that your husbands catch Christianity, like people catch a cold. Is that what he's saying? Well, no, not at all. We're told in verse 1 that the husbands here do not believe. Or more literally, this verse says that they do not obey the word. That they are disobedient to Jesus. And that, of course, means that they must have heard about Jesus, mustn't they? 
You can't disobey something you know nothing about. So they must have heard the good news about Jesus, about his life, his death and his resurrection. Most probably they'd heard it from their wives, hadn't they? Who were brimming over with excitement about this saviour that they met, the Lord Jesus. And they can't help but tell their husbands about him. But they're met by a stoic look. Their husbands don't want a bar of it. I think a bit of context might help here. In Greco-Roman society, the, the time that this was written in, wives were expected to worship the gods of their husbands. Uh, listen to these words from, from a guy called Plutarch. He was a Christian writer uh, living at the same time that this letter was written. He said this, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are first and most important friends. Wherefore it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in. Do you see, for the husband, this was a terrible embarrassment. For his wife to desert his gods? He would have been the laughingstock of his town. Look at him. Look at how he manages his family. Can't even get his wife to toe the line with his gods. We cannot trust him with anything. It was humiliating. And the wife had no doubt tried. She, she told him the gospel again and again and again, but he had rejected it. And so Peter says, now let your actions do the talking. Show him, verse 2, by your purity of life and your reverence, your reverence for God, that the gospel works, that it's true. I think that might be a message that some of us need to hear this morning. Do you know, I grew up in a non-Christian home, uh, and I became a Christian when I was 18. And when I became a Christian, I was just desperate for my family to become Christians too. And that was right. It was right that I felt that way. But it's easy, especially with people we really love, to adopt the, the sort of Spanish Inquisition approach to evangelism. You, you know, shine a light in their eyes and tell them the gospel again and again and again and again in the hope that they'll just believe through being nagged into faith. But that's wrong, isn't it? Sometimes we need to let our actions do the talking. That might be true for you. If you're the only Christian in your family and you're going home this summer to parents who've heard the gospel from you again and again and again. I think it might be something that some of the Christian parents among us need to hear. If you're anything like me, you are absolutely desperate for your children to believe. But we mustn't think that that will happen simply through our constant nagging of them again and again and again and again. We need to let our lives do the talking. We have an unparalleled opportunity as parents to do that. They see every part of our lives. And the same is true for you when you go down the pub with your colleagues this week, probably, if they've already heard the gospel. It might be true when you head into the office tomorrow. Do you need to let your life do the talking? But let me add a really important caveat here. 
This letting your life do the talking only kicks in once you've shared the word, once you've shared the good news of Jesus, once your friends and your family have heard the gospel. In truth, I fear that the problem for, for many of us here this morning, myself included, is not that we said too much, but that we said too little, those people. In our workplaces, in our homes, with our neighbours. We need to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And then having done that, having given people the opportunity to disbelieve, we need to let our lives do the talking. That is Peter's primary point this morning. So so what does that look like? What does that letting our lives do the talking look like in marriage? That's our primary focus this morning. Well, verse 1, it will mean wives... Submitting to their husbands. Now it's really important to say at the outset that this instruction is not merely a cultural statement. It is not something that was said in the first century and only has application for them. Because elsewhere in the Bible, this principle of submission within marriage is linked in with creation. This is something which has been true from the beginning of time. That marriages were created so that wives might submit to their husbands. So it is applicable today just in the same way as it was in the first century. But I'm conscious now that some of you will be offended. For, For some of you, the fact that the Bible says this is a major stumbling block for you believing the whole Bible. For some of you, a stumbling block to even giving Christianity a look in. Well, before I go into the detail of exactly what this passage is saying, can I say that it is really good, really good, that you find parts of the Bible that you don't want to believe? Because this is God's word. And if you don't find anything in it, or you won't receive anything in it that you don't want to receive, then you cannot have a personal relationship with the one who has written it. Uh, Tim Keller has illustrated the point really well. Have you ever seen um, this film, The The Stepford Wives? Anyone seen it? Yeah. Yeah? It's about a group of guys in in Stepford, Connecticut, and they decide that they really like having beautiful wives. The only problem with beautiful wives is that they talk back to them. And so what they do is they decide to put some microchips in their heads, and, and they turn their beautiful wives into robots. So all they ever do now on is say, yes dear, yes dear, yes dear. And so they're perfect wives, so the husbands think. But the problem is that the husbands no longer have a personal relationship with their wife. Because you don't have a personal relationship with someone who just says, yes dear, yes dear, yes dear. You only have a personal relationship with someone who can contradict you. With someone who can argue with you. With someone who can change your minds. Otherwise, you have a robotic friend, don't you? You have a Stepford wife. And you see, if we only believe the parts of the Bible that we like, that, that appeal to our sense of, of, of what's right and wrong, that, that pleases our feelings, that doesn't offend us, if that's our approach to the Bible, then we've got a Stepford God, haven't we? 
I've got a God who will never offend me, who will never contradict me, who will never say anything I don't want to hear. But I've got no personal relationship with him. I simply have a God of my own creation, don't I? But you see, a God that our heart has created cannot ever help us when we feel guilty. You see, when we feel guilty, we need a God that we haven't created to say, you are forgiven. When we feel worthless, we need a God that we haven't created to say, you are loved. And only if you have a God who you know is real, who is speaking to you through the Bible, not a robotic God, that you cobble together, can God say anything to you that tells you to listen to me, not your heart. Do you see? It is really good that the Bible says things we don't like because we need it to. But what does that mean for wives submitting to their husbands? I've just talked about Stepford. Does it mean that Christian wives should be Stepford wives? Does it mean we should surrender our personal relationship with our spouses because that's what God says? No, of course not. Of course not. You see, submission is different to obedience. It involves obedience, doesn't it? Verse 6, we're given Sarah's example of submission, and it includes her obeying Abraham. But I think that submission is more than that. You see, obedience can be compelled, can't it? We put a microchip in a Stepford wife's head, and they obey. We can compel our children to obey. But submission is voluntary difference. I think the reference to Sarah here is actually really interesting. It it almost certainly comes from Genesis uh, chapter 18. That's the only place in the Bible where Sarah calls Abraham Lord. Um, And and there, just turn it up with me, Uh, it's Genesis chapter 18. We've got it on the projector. Let's get back to that. Sarah calls Abraham Lord. It's important to say Lord in that context. It's a bit like husband and ours. You know, husband comes from the Norse, which means master of the house. We don't mean it like that. We're not saying master of the house every time we talk about our husband. It's just the way we, we show respect. And Lord, in that context, was saying the same thing. And the context was that the three angels come to, to visit Abraham and Sarah, and they say, a year from now, Sarah, your wife, will have a baby. And Sarah just laughs and says, verse 12, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Do you see what's happening? Who does Sarah say it to? She says it to herself, doesn't she? She doesn't say it to Abraham. She calls him Lord to herself because she needs to remind herself to respect her husband. Submission is voluntary. It is a decision. It is not Stepford. So wives can discuss things with their husbands. They are free to disagree with their husbands. They can seek to persuade. They can seek to persuade vigorously so. But submission means that ultimately they respect their husbands and follow their lead in the relationship. 
Isn't that demeaning? Doesn't that mean that, that women are in some way inferior to men if they follow their husband's lead? Well, only if Jesus is inferior. Look again at verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands. In the same way. Same as what? Well, it refers back to verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2, doesn't it? In the same way, as Jesus submitted himself to the Roman authorities, cruel as they were, In the same way as he submitted himself to God the Father, so submit yourself to your husbands. I think we have a really screwed up idea of what greatness is. We think greatness is is all about being self-assertive. It's all about standing on our rights. I have a right to this. That's greatness. But Jesus has showed us what true greatness is. True greatness is found in forgoing our rights. True greatness is found in submitting to others. And Jesus has shown that submission does not mean inferiority. Jesus is equal with God the Father, and yet, verse 23 of chapter 2, he entrusted himself into his Father's hands. In the same way, verse 7 of chapter 3, wives are equal with their husbands. They are co-heirs of eternal life. They are absolutely equal, beyond a doubt. And yet they are called to submit to their husbands in marriage. Wives, you have an amazing, amazing privilege. In submitting to your husbands, you get to model Christ to them. Verses 3 to 4 filled us out a bit more. Uh, Peter contrasts two kinds of beauty. Uh, there, there is outward beauty, good looks, fine hair, the, the latest Gucci dress. And that's the sort of beauty that society is fixated with, isn't it? You turn up most magazines on the supermarket shelf, and they'll read an article on how to stay eternally young. What's, what's the latest clothing to be found in this summer? How do you make yourself up to, to win that guy or girl of your dreams? Our society elevates outward looks above expertise, doesn't it? That's why you're far more likely to see Cheryl Cole on a TV panel show than your local GP. But Peter tells us not to pursue that kind of beauty. Rather, the beauty we're to seek is the beauty of the inner self. Beauty that that never fades or passes away. The the beauty, verse 4, of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now again, this doesn't mean that that women are not to say anything, but they're to be silent. In fact, the word used here is not even distinctively feminine, talking about a gentle and quiet spirit. Elsewhere in, in 1 Timothy, all Christians are called to live quiet lives. And Jesus himself is is called gentle, meek. So Christian wives are are not called to be different, to to be subservient. Christian wives are called to follow their saviour in having gentle, quiet spirits. And if they do that, verse 4, it is of great worth in God's sight. 
Why? Well, because in submitting to their husbands, useless though we are, Christian wives show that they are really putting their trust in God. They're trusting that his word here is true and his word here is right. And you know they're doing just as Jesus did? What did Jesus do in Gethsemane? But the night before he died, he was there weeping, sweating blood, and he said, take this cup from me, speaking to his father. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. Can I speak to the Christian men here who are not yet married? If you're looking for a wife, what are you looking for? Do you want a trophy wife who looks really good on your arm? It's fine if you do, but 50 years from now, she is not going to look that good. (laughs) She's not going to look that good, unlike a wife who wants to submit and model Christ to you. She will have a beauty that grows from the day you marry her to the day you die. Choose beauty that lasts, brothers in Christ. And can I speak to Christian women too? Don't get sucked in by the media and advertising, okay? It's fine to have nice clothes. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying you mustn't have nice clothes. But whatever you do, make sure you spend more of your time and your money investing in that inner beauty. That's what matters. That's what lasts. And be really careful when you think about who you're going to marry. Be really careful. It's easy to think, well, I like this guy because of this and this and this and this, and the rest I'll change. (laughs) But that's not how it works. When you marry, you need to marry someone you are prepared to submit to in all the big decisions in life. In decisions about where to live, where to work, how to raise children, how many children to have. Where to spend your Christmases, which church to go to, how much time to spend with each of your friends, how to spend your money. Choose wisely. You won't agree with everything, but choose a man you can submit to. And given how hard that is in normal circumstances, and it is very hard when you're married to someone like me, Anna can tell you. Given how hard it is, how could you ever think of marrying someone who's not a believer? How could you think of marrying someone who doesn't share the same greatest love in their life as you do? It's worth pointing out here that there are limits to submission. We submit first to God, don't we? Uh, And then to our husbands. And Peter was writing here to women who'd already made that stand. They'd already said to their husbands, I cannot submit to you in the worship of your gods. And Christian wives who are married to non-Christians, you need to do that. You submit to God first. And there are also limits in relation to domestic abuse. And we're going to come on to that a bit later. But in other situations, Christian wives are called to submit to their husbands. And as they do, they will win people for Christ. Let me tell you about Rose. Uh, Rose was the leader of the youth group I was in uh, just after I'd become a Christian. Uh, she'd become a Christian several years beforehand, and she was absolutely desperate for her husband, Nick, to become a Christian. And so, Nick, uh, so, so Rose set about loving Nick like she had never loved him before. 
And she says about respecting Nick like she'd never respected him before. And slowly over the period of a couple of years, he started coming along to youth group, then coming along to church, and then made a profession of Christ. What made him look more into Christianity? What was the transformation he'd seen in his wife? And the transformation he'd seen in his marriage? He he saw that the gospel works. Friends, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3 are controversial. They are not what our society wants to hear. But lived out, these verses are incredibly attractive. Say verses 1 to 6 and people will be shocked. Live verses 1 to 6 and people will see that these words are beautiful. Peter moves on. Verse 7, he turns to address husbands. He gives them just one verse. It's not because his commands to husbands are any less demanding. It's simply because they can be put more succinctly. So look at verse 7. Husbands, in the same way be considerate as you live with your wives. More, More literally it says, live with your wives according to knowledge. Not knowledge of God, and knowledge of your wives. And notice how that phrase recurs. Look at verse 7. In the same way. It's referring back to verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2 again. It's referring back to Christ, in the way of Christ. So, so how is Christ an example to Christian husbands? Well, surely it's an example of self-sacrificial love, isn't it? Jesus lived on earth with knowledge. He knew God. He knew God's exacting demands of holiness and justice. And Jesus knew us. He knew our sin and our rebellion and how we deserved God's judgment. And that drove him to the cross to die in our place. To take the punishment that we deserved. That is the heart of Christianity, isn't it? And in the same self-sacrificial, gracious way, husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives. And that means, verse 7, treating them with respect as the weaker partner. Now, now again, this is a provocative phrase, isn't it? The weaker partner. Let's be absolutely clear about what it does not mean. It does not mean that women are morally or intellectually inferior to their husbands. It doesn't mean that women are naive. It doesn't mean that they're stupid. It doesn't mean that they are not as good at running businesses as men. None of that is true. And none of that is what Peter is saying. What it does mean is that, by and large, men are physically stronger than women. And that most men can, if they wish to impose their will by force on women. And that fact is simply borne out by statistics. According to the British Crime Survey in 2004, 84% of domestic violence cases are against women. Do you know, on average, two women are killed every week by a partner or ex-partner in this country. That constitutes... 40% of the total homicide victims amongst women in our country. 
men exploit and abuse women. It's just a fact. And it corresponds exactly with what the Bible says about what humans are like post-fall. Think back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Adam and Eve have sinned, they've rejected God's rule, and God pronounces judgment on them. Verse 16, he says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. This word translated desire carries a sense of, of grasping. When sin enters the world, it, it causes Eve to, to grasp and seek to usurp her husband's authority. And it causes Adam, in turn, her husband, to, to rule over, to, to use his authority harshly over Eve. But that is not the way things should be in a Christian marriage. It's not. We've been redeemed. We've been bought. We've been sanctified. There is no room, none at all, none, for brutality in Christian marriage. None at all. In a group this size, I think it's almost inevitable that some of us have been a victim of abuse, either in the past or are ongoing. Let me just say, if that's you, that's the sort of thing that we often want to keep really secret. But you don't have to. You can come and speak to someone. Any of the leadership here or otherwise will be really happy to speak to you after the meeting. Speak. Have someone to pray with you through it. And husbands, never do that. Treat your wives with respect. For verse 7, they are joint heirs with you. They are equal in Christ. And that means that you should love them graciously, you should love them self-sacrificially. You are to honour them by setting aside your own personal preferences and putting theirs first. You are to love them as Christ has loved you. There is not a bigger call on your life than that. Love your wives as Christ loved you, laying down his life for you. Can I be clear, these duties in verses 1 to 7 are not reciprocal. It's not like you only need to submit to your husband if he loves you self-sacrificially. And husbands, it's not like you only need to honour your wife if she submits to you. Not at all. Listen, if you're sitting here this morning thinking, I am so pleased my wife is here listening to this. This is what I've been trying to tell her all along. I'm so pleased Ralph is saying it now. Snap out of it. Husbands, you are to respect and honour your wives, putting their needs ahead of your own, whether they submit to you or not. Win their submission with your love. And wives, love and submit to your husbands, whether they grasp verse 7 or not. Win your husbands with submission. Paul Tripp has written an excellent book on marriage. It's called, um, uh, What Did You Expect? Has anyone read it? Brilliant, you should get hold of this. One of the things he says again and again is this. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. And that's true, isn't it? Most married people think the biggest problem in their marriage is their partner. We think, well, you know, I've been telling her all along that if only she changed this way, our marriage would work much, much better. But in truth, we are all sinners, aren't we? We're all in need to grow in godliness. And that change needs to start with us, doesn't it? 
We're always praying that God would change our hearts. The biggest problem in your marriage is you. Just as we close, let's look at how verse 7 ends. Do this, honour your wives, submit to your husbands, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. You know, there is a direct link between the health of our marriage and the health of our prayer life. So husbands and wives, let me ask you, how is your prayer life? Are you praying with your spouse regularly? Are you praying regularly on your own? If not, then, then before you run off and buy the latest book on prayer for tips, but before you throw yourself into service in the church, thinking that will cover over your, your stagnant personal spiritual life, take a look at your marriage. Take a look at verses 1 to 7. Healthy marriages win people for the gospel. Therefore, follow Christ in your marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands. Follow Christ. Husbands, honour your wives. Follow Christ. Say these words here tomorrow morning in the office and people will be shocked and disgusted. Live these words and people will see that the gospel is beautiful. Shall I pray for us? Lord Jesus, you, you didn't call us to an easy life. The, the gospel's free, that's brilliant. But you said to your disciples that they were to follow you by denying themselves and taking up their cross. And Lord, we know that one of the hardest forums to do that in is in our marriages. And yet, Lord, you have made it possible. You have led the way. You have given us the Holy Spirit to, to change and transform our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would know that the biggest problem in our marriages is us. And Lord, we come before you as sinners and repent of the ways that we have failed our spouses, the way that we have failed to honour you, the way that we have brought the gospel into disrepute. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, and change us. And empower us to live lives and have marriages that bring you great glory and praise so that on that day when you visit the earth, Many unbelievers will have already been brought to declare your praise as we ask. Amen.